everybody and welcome to the first twice removed of series four i can't believe we're on series four it just seems crazy hope you all had a lovely uh, christmas and new year break it's great to be back um so just in case you're new here my name's natalie i'm a family historian and i run a club called the curious descendants club where i help people to write about their family history and i think uh one of the key elements of writing about your family history is to pack it with as much historical context as possible uh, and with that in mind i uh, spend every other tuesday interviewing fabulous historians and picking their brains so i can learn to be a better historian myself so this week i'm joined by the lovely tara morton who um created the mapping <laughs> mapping women's suffrage Oh, I've, if I said that wrong, no, I haven't. We have Mapping Women's Suffrage 1911 Project. Um, I'm really excited to have you here, Tara. I'm sure you'll do a much better job of introducing yourself than than I did there when I fluffed <laughs> your project right from the start. So. <laughs> no, that's fine, Natalie. I mean, I'm going to keep it simple. As you said, my name is Tara Morton, and I'm the creator and project officer of Mapping Women's Suffrage 1911. Um, we're sort of a currently self-funded project in the sense that we're not centrally funded so that means this is a real labor of love for me um but we do have official uh, partners collaborators that we actually want to build upon um and perhaps we can talk about that in a little bit more detail later when we talk about the project a little bit more um but yeah that's essentially who i am if i had a better quality camera you'd be able to see that you know there's loads here about women's politics and <laughs> suffragism and feminism because it's a real passion of mine just something I've always been interested in um so yeah that's that's me really <laughs> I love it I've got bookshelf envy I, I I have a bookshelf but it's off camera and I can't get it on camera because of the way oh, my room's laid out I'm like oh <laughs> yeah I know I need another house just so that I can display my bookcase on camera to twice removed viewers <laughs> Um, okay, so everyone, just a reminder, you are more than welcome to um, comment as we're talking um, and ask your questions and I can I can bring them up on screen. But just to get us kick started, what exactly is the uh, Mapping Women's Suffrage 1911 project? What's it doing? <laughs> well, the clue's kind of in the title. Um, it's a mapping project. Um, I don't know if any of your kind of listeners have, have seen it at all, but if they haven't, um, it's probably worth me just mentioning the website address. And in fact, you know, if you want to kind of have a play around with it, we'll have a look at it while we're talking. That would probably be quite cool, really. Um, so it's www.mappingwomensuffrage.org.uk. And obviously, you know, we've got a website. There's lots of other things going on um, on the website as well surrounding the map. So we've got, you know, some context there as well about the suffrage campaign. We've got sort of news and events page. We've got blogs and things like that. But the main drive, obviously, of the project is um, a map in which we seek to identify, to recover, to plot and therefore record um, the lives and the life stories of as many suffrage campaigners as possible across the country ready for the suffrage centenary in 2028. Um, so yeah, in a nutshell, that's what the project does. Um, you know, there's lots more elements to it and it's quite kind of strange for me talking about it without having it on screen, but I'll do my absolute best to kind of talk about what, what we do with that. Um, I think one of the main thrusts of the of the mapping project is the fact that we know as historians that there are so many um, suffrage campaigners out there that we just don't know about. Um, and lots of that information um, is um, something that local historians, family researchers um, and people like that will ha have that knowledge and perhaps are looking for somewhere to share it. 
So part of the point of our project is to get those people to come forward and to share that information with us. Um, we're a sort of ethical project as well, in the sense that everybody that contributes to our project gets acknowledged. I think that's really important, especially when you know you're relying on volunteers, for example. Um, you know, it's really important to us to recognise those contributions from everyone, um, and also to recognise ordinary women in the suffrage campaign. Um, I think you know generally um, there's a sort of popular perception out there um, that. Um, you know, the suffrage campaign was really about the dramatic deeds of what we would call the suffragettes. And that most of those deeds, which were as anything from window smashing to arsons to bombings to all of these kind of militant activities as they're often referred to, kind of took place in London as well. And over the years, you know, academics, of course, have, have, have presented a much more nuanced picture, but popular representations still tend to fall back on that image. Um, but of course, we know that most suffrage campaigners were involved in the in the campaign for votes for women in, in, in many different ways. And what some people might consider more mundane ways, everyday ways. But that's really what the bedrock of most political movements are. And that's really what we want to be able to map um, with this project. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're lucky enough that we've got a number of um, local history organisations that have come forward to collaborate with us, which is fantastic. Um, so, for example, most recently we've had a history society in York um, that have made their first contribution, which is a fascinating suffrage campaigner called Annie Coultate, who was also a teacher. Um, and she sort of um, was, was quite a, a big name in York, really. So she's a really fascinating person. Um, in Nottingham as well, so coming down to the Midlands, we've had the Nottingham History Group as well, um, and they've helped to build up um, already quite a, a significant little area in Nottingham of campaigners that were sort of active there in 1911. Um, and then we've got individual fabulous research that have come forward. Um, one, for example, is Frances Stenlake down in Sussex. Um, so she's really made a massive impact locally, um, providing us with information on different campaigners there. And you can really see that reflected in the map. So there's like a really big community going on there, which is fabulous. So I'm not trying to get people to be competitive, but the more people can get involved <laughs> and build up their area and win, win the kind of best populated suffrage part of the map. <laughs> I would love to be part of, you know, the county that had the most suffragettes or the most suffragists. That would be really fantastic, wouldn't it? I'd but be of really proud of that. that as well is that idea that you know what we want to do is have more or see more interplay between what's going on locally and what's going on nationally so one of the principles behind the map is the idea that look you know as local communities and researchers if we can all get together and build up our local towns our local villages in terms of who was living there in what were they doing for the suffrage campaign how were they doing it what groups did they belong to if we can work together as local historians, as archivists, as librarians, as family researchers, as academics, to kind of build up those bits locally, then that kind of comes together in a much bigger mapping picture. And we can see actually in the end what's going on nationally. So the two kind of feed into each other. So that's a really big aim of the project as well, is to really uncover what's going on from you know the smallest hamlets and villages through to the large kind of industrial cities. Um, and, you know, we can use the map then in different ways um, to explore, you know, differences, similarities um, and lots of sort of issues like that. Um, sorry, I know I'm talking quite a bit. <laughs> okay. but I just interrupted you on it. I was going to 
I was just going to rewind a little bit to why uh, why did you decide to focus on um, 1911? Quick, drink your tea. <laughs> Sorry, quick, quick tea. It's been a long day. I hope everyone can appreciate the mug. Votes to women. <laughs> I just thought it was really appropriate to drink my, drink my tea out of this tonight. But yeah, sorry, that's a really good question. Why 1911? Um, I suppose basing the map in 1911 has real, really two sort of main reasons. The first is that 1911 really represented, um, I suppose you'd call the height of the votes for women movement. Um, I think to give that a bit of context, it's important to remember that the organised women's suffrage movement, so when it became a nationally organised kind of campaign, is really symbolised um, by a petition that was handed in to Parliament um, by the Liberal MP John Stuart Mill on behalf of women in 1866, requesting wow. female suffrage. Um, so that was kind of the, the nationally organised formal kind of start of it, of the campaign. And if you think that by the time we sort of fast forward to 1911, that's, you know, almost kind of 50 years of, of, of kind of campaigning um, for the vote. Um, and, you know, um, by then, of course, we've got loads of suffrage societies as well. So in the beginning, there were just a few, these mushrooms over the years, intervening years. Some fell by the wayside, some developed. Um, and by the time you get to 1911, you've probably got around 50 suffrage societies altogether. But you've got the main, what we call maybe the big three, um, which is um, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, which was, of course, by 1907, led by uh, Mrs. Millicent Fawcett, whose sort of statue was recently erected in 2018 in Parliament Square. Um, and they were a law abiding organisation. So very much kind of sticking to those um, tried and, and sort of tested tactics that campaigners of, of all shapes and sizes use in different political campaigns for many years and still do today, which is petitioning um, Parliament, um, lobbying MPs, you know, all those kind of tried and tested and law-abiding methods. Um, and then, of course, in 1903, you get the formation of uh, the Women's Social and Political Union, um, which, of course, is Mrs. Emmeline uh, Pankhurst's. Um, uh, she was the, the leader of the Women's Social and Political Union. Um, and they obviously formed in Manchester. Um, and their kind of roots are very much in that sort of um, independent Labour Party, working class, trade union type organisations. Um, and so they formed in 1903 um, to argue for votes for women. But, of course, they took a very different tack. Um, and decided that, you know, really direct action uh, type politics, as we probably call it today, and that term would be more familiar to us. Um, they decided that, you know, something needed to be done differently. And so they kind of moved from Manchester down to London in 1906 and started, started that sort of militant uh, campaign, which ranged from anything from heckling MPs, um, which again we see still quite effective today, interrupting their speeches, interrupting their meetings, um, through to, you know, later in the campaign, kind of quite violent methods. So we've got window smashing, we've got arson campaigns, and we've even got some bombings um, um, for which women themselves paid a, paid a high price in terms of imprisonment and, um, um, you know, sort of really horrible treatment. Um, 
And of course, you've also got the Women's Freedom League, which not many people know about and don't mention it very often, but it was quite a big society in its own right. And it was actually a breakaway society from the Women's Social and Political Union. Um, okay. In 1907, it formed as a breakaway because there was quite a few differences between some of the women that had originally founded the WSPU on various issues. And it, too, was militant. Um, so its members were prepared to break the law, too. Um, but they tended to do it in slightly different ways. Some would argue slightly more strategic ways. Um, but again, I mean, that's kind of a whole other topic in itself. So by the time you get to 1911, the point being that, you know, the campaign's been going for a long time you've got these incredible number of societies you've got these big main three that a lot of women belong to um so that's probably one of that's one of the reasons that the map set them but of course um one of the most important reasons and all of your listeners who are family historians and researchers will know that 1911 was the year um, of the government census survey um and obviously that's absolutely vital um for our mapping project and for the suffrage campaign in general um, for numerous reasons um, which I'm happy to elaborate on if you'd like me to. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say actually was were there do we have any idea of whether there were more um, law-abiding or more law-breaking groups of um, suffrage organisations? I think generally speaking we'd say that most women tended to be law-abiding. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, you know, and I think that's one of the interesting things about the census, which I'll come back to in a minute and why it's actually mm -hmm. so useful for the mapping project. Um, and I mean, certainly the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies was was sort of the largest organisation. I mean, it had branches all over the country. And I think part of the reason for that is that, you know, if we you know, if we think about, you know, direct action, we think about being involved in politics, you know, most people. Uh, would find it easier to be involved in a law-abiding way, you know, so doing things like organising petitions, doing things like holding coffee mornings, holding tea mornings, these are all things that women did, um, you know, to sort of encourage other women to get involved, to pressure their local MPs. I mean, these are tactics that we're not unfamiliar with today. Mm. Um, so I think it was much easier to be a law-abiding uh, campaigner um, I mean, also, of course, there's the there's the issue of, you know, do you want to win hearts and minds? Do you want to persuade people um, into your political argument, into your political perspective? Or do you want to potentially anger them or inflame them? These are all things that I'm sure women then thought about as they do now. Um, so, yeah, I would I would say that, you know, the majority of women that were involved in the suffrage campaign were sort of law abiding. That said... Of course, the impact um, of um, an organisation like the Women's Social and Political Union was quite dramatic yeah. um, because, you know, this isn't just about the vote itself. It's about completely changing the public perception of, of what was feminine behaviour, what was the right thing to do and that women had the right to revolt. So, um, you know, there's, there's a, it's a it's a real kind of, it's a sliding scale, really. So at one end, you've got, you know, sort of very law-abiding kind of methods and traditional tried and tested ways of being involved in politics. And then right at the other end of the scale, you've got extreme militants, some of whom, you know, were acting alone in the sense that they might have belonged to the Women's Social Political Union, but they certainly didn't seek advice or permission to carry out certain acts that they decided to carry out. It was something that they believed was appropriate and they just did it. Um 
And in between there is like a whole fudgy gray line um, of, of, of women's kind of participation. So, for example, I mean, a really, a really kind of interesting example in terms of the census, which you must remind me to come back yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> I've but, um, <laughs> but yeah, sorry, it's that, it's that time of night. I've had too many coffees, so do forgive no me if I'm kind of uh, jumping around a little bit. But yeah, so, so one of the women that's really interesting in terms of that kind of reflection of that spectrum is a 1911 census that I came across when I was um, working with um, Professor Richardson at Warwick University, which again, I can come back to our, our relationship with uh, Warwick University later on. But it was this lady called um, Ada Florence Whittick, who was sort of living in Leamington Spa in the Midlands in Warwickshire. And she was um, a law-abiding suffragette. So she suffragist, sorry. So she um, sort of belonged to this organisation that was completely law-abiding in its methods and everything else. So she complied with the 1911 census. She filled it in, uh, all the details as appropriate. And I'll explain why, you know, that is important in a minute yeah. in terms of, of the 1911 census. But she filled it in and no problems there at all. But then in the bottom bit where she signed it, she put, the fact that she was a suffragist, that she was in support of votes of women, and she put non-militant at present, so she wrote it in her own hands. And essentially what she was saying on the census form is, look, you know, it's 1911, I'm a law-abiding votes of women campaigner at the moment, but I'm that's now, at <laughs> present, you know, and, and basically what she's saying is, so, you know, I'm right on that cusp, I'm right on that line of thinking about stepping over into something more um, serious and, and potentially breaking the law because I'm just so frustrated. And I think that snapshot from that 1911 census and her sort of handwritten note um, just kind of sums up the frustration that some women were feeling by then. And that, you know, it really is a sliding spectrum, you know, about, you know, women weren't always kind of law abiding and they're not law abiding. You know, there's such so many gray areas in between. Yeah, sure. And I've, I was just, um, uh, one of our watchers, Jane, is, has just commented to say it would be interesting to research the differences between what was going on in New Zealand compared to UK, given that New Zealand women got the vote so much sooner, 1893. Um, and I, I think it's a really good point. But I also think that um, what's interesting about that is we're still campaigning in 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 the UK. Um, you know, by 1911, you could get on a steamship and, and go to New Zealand where the women did have the vote. And then, of course, you've got the whole um, colonial situation. So... I, you know that frustration must have been at absolute boiling point when I yeah that. absolutely and of course included along with with New Zealand you know you've got Australia you know many of the the states in the United States um Finland Norway you know I think by 1907 pretty much all of those countries um had had, had some measure of female suffrage and then for British women that was even more frustrating especially as you say in that colonial context where you know um, rightly or wrongly, um, uh, British women would be looking at Australia and thinking, "Well, hold on, you know, this is a this is a, a colony. We're the mother country, and yet Australian women have been uh, granted the vote, and we haven't." And in fact, of course, a lot of Australian um, um, suffrage campaigners came over um, um, to, to to London in particular, in particular, uh, and joined sort of their their sisters here in in, in Britain in in sort of uh, campaigning for female suffrage. Um, you know, women like Muriel Matters, for example, you know, so it was a real kind of global campaign. And I think there's no divorcing the one country from another. You know, this all kind of, you know, added to that mix of frustration and, you know, 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting um, observation by, um, I think it was Jane, wasn't it? There? Yeah, Jane, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay but, but yeah so I, I don't know whether I really kind of got round to because we kind of went <laughs> on a bit of a tangent but yeah so the, the two main reasons for why the map is sort of set if you like in 1911 is one because we were at this kind of pivotal height of the campaign when lots of women were involved there were lots of uh, different suffrage societies there was lots going on um but also it's that 1911 census so from a mapping point of view of course it's gold because it tells us the addresses of a lot of the suffrage campaigners that we already know about. Um, so it enables us to plot them, which is obviously really important. Um, in terms of law-abiding campaigners, that is, of course, because um, they filled it in as they were supposed to. Um, and so we have a record of where they were. And of course, it also tells us, as, as you all know, as, as kind of family historians and things like that, that it tells us other interesting things about them, like what was their occupation at that time? What sort of age were they? Um, you know, what was their family circumstance? You know, how big was the house they were living in? You know, yeah, they have servants? You know, so mm. it not just tells us where a suffrage campaigner lived, which is brilliant for the map, but it also tells us so many other things about their lives, um, which helps us to think about, well, you know, and again, this is thinking about when we've built that bigger picture. So we've mapped local areas and that feeds into a national picture. We can start to see, well, also, OK, was there a particularly uh, was there an occupation that was particularly predominant? Uh, is there an age group that we're talking about here? Is there a class issue or a socioeconomic thing going on here? You know, so the census uh, in 1911 is really useful for, for those reasons. But of course, in terms of the context of the suffrage campaign, um, there was also the suffragette boycott of the 1911 census survey. Um, now, before I talk about that, is it worth me? I don't know, Natalie, but do you think it's worth kind of just differentiating that word? Because I've said a few times suffragist and I've said a few times suffragette. Yeah, I think it I think it absolutely I, I don't know whether it's worth me just clarifying what I mean when I say that. No, I think it absolutely is because I I I quite often get them modelled. I have to go double check, you know, before I write the word, I go and double check sometimes the definition. So I think the more times you repeat it, the more times it will help cement it in people's minds. So yeah, so ahead. I mean, again, I mean, I hate to kind of simplify things too much because you know everybody who's interested in history knows there's, there's very rarely kind of black and white things. We just talked about that sliding rule between kind of being law abiding and then kind of working your way up to the other end of the spectrum. And there's lots of gray areas in between. But generally speaking, when we talk about suffragist, we're talking about someone that is campaigning for votes for women, but they're doing so in a, in a kind of law abiding constitutional way. So employing those kind of traditional methods that we were talking about, petitioning, lobbying MPs, that kind of thing. Um, when we talk about suffragettes, of course, we're talking about those that were prepared to sort of, as they would put it, break the law to make the law. Um, so, and that could range again from anything from, as we'll come back to in a minute, uh, graffitiing or defacing or not filling in your 1911 census survey, because, you know, that is a legal requirement as it still is today, um, through to, you know, kind of extreme militancy, we're talking about, you know, sort of arson and, and, and bombings and things like that. So, you know, that's the kind of distinction we kind of make in terms of those two words although like I said this is a massive grey area in between so I think it's important not to kind of polarise those two things too much um, 
But yeah, so coming back to the 1911 census, um, the suffragettes, so those women that were prepared to break the law, and as we saw from Ada, who, uh, Florence Whittick, whose census I mentioned earlier, um, not everybody that participated in the boycott was necessarily what we would call a suffragette. Some did belong to law-abiding organisations and otherwise um, you know, weren't involved in any kind of militant activity. But when it came to this proposed boycott of the 1911 government census survey, um, it was largely kind of what we'd call sort of suffragette or militant organisations that encouraged their members to take part. So, you know, Mrs Pankhurst encouraged WSPU members to boycott the census, um, the Women's Freedom League and their leader, Charlotte Despert. Uh, Despard um, encouraged their members um, to, to boycott the census. Um, and of course, there were different ways of doing this. Um, but the reason for doing it um, is also quite important. Um, so obviously, why boycott the census? And essentially, the ethos was that, you know, well, if women don't count as citizens, which they don't without a parliamentary vote, then why should they be counted in the government's population statistics? You know, yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's a brilliant article which is actually on the Mapping Women's Suffrage website by Jill Liddington and Elizabeth Crawford, which is 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 sort of pretty much entitled that you know, um, you know that that women don't count, um, so don't count us basically. Yeah. So it was that kind of protest. And what was interesting about it is, although technically it's it's not legal to boycott the census or to deface your census form, which as I'll speak about in a minute, um, some campaigners did. It's also kind of um, a form of civil protest. So it's a kind of militancy, if you like, that you can take part in without um, kind of thinking about the sort of protests where you might encounter the police, where you might be arrested in that sense. You know, it's kind of... Seems like quite a soft step. To, yeah, it's to kind of, yeah, it's of civil disobedience you know? sort yeah. of genre, isn't it? And I think that was the hope really in many ways that it would make it far easier for lots more votes for women campaigners to participate in an action like that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that said, of course, it still had risks associated with it because, you know, technically speaking, you could be, you know, fined quite heavily for not completing the census. Um, and, you know, you could actually end up um, being imprisoned. Um, so, you know, it, it's not to make light of this as something that was kind of easy to do because there was a lot of consideration there to be done. And especially if you think about working class women who wouldn't have had the means to pay any hefty fines for not completing the census survey. I was just going to ask whether there were... Different spin on it. Yeah, I was just going to ask whether there were cases where people paid the fine on their behalf, so groups that they belong to or uh, organisations or movements that they belong to. Well, they... Pr pretty much the government decided... I think wisely not to pursue okay. this, but at the time that women took part in that boycott, they didn't know that. And I think yeah. that's the important thing when we think about the bravery of the women that took part in this, although it might seem like, well, it's, you know, it's a, it's a civil disobedience matter. It's a piece of paper. Well, we know, you know, that if potentially there's a threat of a hefty fine or there's a threat of imprisonment hanging over your head when you decide to take any kind of action you know that that's you know when you've got a family when you've got you know um you know the circumstances to consider um you know that's that's not to be sniffed at um so obviously you know the, the boycott went ahead and you had sort of three categories, I guess, guess you could call it, with the 1911 census. So one was those that complied. So we've talked about those law-abiding campaigners that filled it in. 
and complied, which is great for our mapping project because it's it's just nice and easy. The problem, of course, arises when you get one's uh, uh, votes to women um, campaign is that did boycott the census. But again, that was done in different ways. So you've got women that were recorded at their homes where they lived and their usual addresses on census nights. Um, but they may be resisted in other ways. So, for example, they would have written a, a slogan or graffitied across their census form. And there's some fabulous examples, um, and a lot of which are on our map, thanks to the National Archives that we've got a partnership with, um, where women have literally just graffitied, and I mean graffitied across their census forms. Um, I mean, a great example on the map, um, which is really visual, is Mary Howie, who lived in um, the sort of Worcestershire area. And she was an artist and she also recorded under occupation on her census form, artist and suffragette. And she literally just wrote across the, the, the sort of census form in huge letters, you know, votes for women. I mean, there's no mistake that, that, yeah. you know, what her political persuasion was. And there's lots of examples of that. But then you know, there's other census forms where women have, have, have sort of written quite lengthy explanations about, look, you know, I'm not providing any more information about myself because until I get the vote, you know, I'm just not a citizen in your eyes. So, you know, I'm, I'm basically, I'm just not doing it. Um, so, you know, you get quite a spectrum of, of, of graffiti even um, on, on those kind of uh, forms. And we call that more of a resistance because the women are recorded on the census. Yeah. Whereas, strictly speaking, I guess the idea of the boycott was kind of to not be on it at all, to absent yourself from the record altogether, to spoil the government's collection of population statistics. That was kind of the idea. So a lot of women um, evaded. And of course, that meant just completely disappearing from home on census night so that you weren't there, you weren't recorded, you didn't exist. Um, and of course, women went to all kinds of ingenious lengths to get out of being recorded and to be absent from home, which wasn't easy as a woman in that period to be just absent from home. Mm. And so um, the Women's Freedom League and the Women's Social and Political Union organised mass evasions or what we might call kind of suffragette sleepovers these days, you know, where they literally rented a room somewhere and then just lots of kind of suffragettes would pile in and sleep over and chat and you know just basically spend the night there hiding out so they could avoid being recorded on the census and there's some really interesting stories which you never know, I might get a chance to talk about later um about you know sort of some of the things that went on um so yeah but of course from a historical point of view and from a mapping point of view that raises a lot of issues yeah absolutely <laughs> they're not there yeah. So, yeah, we're looking for these campaigns we want to map them we want to put them at their usual address in 1911 and we're like oh gosh this person like just evaded or she's, they're just not there so how do we find them and again perhaps that's something i'll come back to when we talk about alternative sources and things like that um but one thing we've done on the um, mapping women's suffrage project is actually to make it an interactive map so there are certain filters on there, um, which if anybody's got it up now and is playing with it, or if you get a chance to look at it later, you can actually filter um, the women that you're looking at on the map according to things like whether they took part in the 1911 census um, boycott, whether they evaded or whether they resisted, that type of thing. And you can kind of make them appear or disappear and filter them. 
Um, and that also happens according to the society they belong to. So you can get some really interactive ideas in terms of the patterns and shapes of the movement of women's participation in the boycotts. Um, of what organisations they belong to. Because like I said, it's not always black and white. You know, we found, and I can't think of an example off the top of my head at the moment, but there are lots of instances actually of women that we would have expected, as for example, WSPU members, to have boycotted the census, to have evaded it or to have resisted. And they didn't, they complied. And that's quite a surprise. So then, you know, we start to think about, well, why would that be? And in a lot of instances, these women were involved in other social reform campaigns. And so, for example, when you look at things like infant mortality rates, when you look at things like overcrowding, from their perspective, to spoil the government's collection of those kind of statistics by sort of skewing it, if you like, by sort of evading or being absent, potentially could skew future information about overcrowding and infant mortality that could be used to actually argue for the implementation of, of social reform measures that a lot of these women also campaigned for. So again, like everything, um, you know, it's, it's it's quite a complicated picture. It's not always as, as simple um, as, as we might at first think. Um, so I think the 1911 census for so many reasons is just a really fascinating document. Absolutely, it sounds it. I, I, it never occurred to me actually that by um, by boycotting it, you, you know, your feelings about boycotting it might be influenced by things like wanting to record infant mortality. I think that's really interesting. Um, so you've mentioned a couple of um, the women that you've discovered already. Have you got any? Have you got any favourites that you've discovered that you that you find yourself sort of retelling their stories? Um, oh, I mean, I th that's quite a hard one for me because I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you'd expect me to say that but yeah um I mean I did I did think about that because I, I guess that you know that's something that that might be interesting to talk about so I did if you don't mind me just having a quick look at I just I just not uh, noted down just a couple of things actually because there's so many in my head as I'm sure you can imagine um so I just try to write down a few and I think trying to think of a sort of funny one kind of funny but also quite family oriented and mm. I think some people might relate to is a lady that was actually contributed to the mapping project by the wonderful um, Vicky Iglikowski Broad who um, um, is a sort of archive specialist at the National Archives in Kew and she's been brilliant working with us on the project she's been so helpful to me personally and to the project as well and she put forward this lady's uh, census return, 1911 census return, and this lady was called Eleonora Maund. So imagine this document, you know, we've got this 1911 census. Now, her, she was married. Um, her husband was about 30 odd years her senior. They'd got several children um, by 1911. And she was living um, in, I think it was 8, 8 Edith Road or something down in London. Um, and she had joined the Women's Social and Political Union and clearly she wanted to take part in the census boycott. Her husband, however, had other ideas. And as the head of the household, of course, he was responsible for filling in the details on um, the 1911 census form. So you can see that he's kind of filled it all in, it's very detailed accounts. And then through her name and her details, there's a big black line. Then there's like this really kind of scruffy red arrow coming down and then there's kind of red writing at the bottom in red ink, which really kind of stands out. And it's basically that she 
saw that he put her details down. She said, no, I'm, I don't want to be here. No, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to evade here. Just, you know, cro I'm crossing myself off. So she did. Then he objected to the fact that she was crossing herself off because he didn't agree with the whole votes of women thing and he didn't agree with her being part of it. So then he writes a whole lengthy note at the bottom. And I, I think I'll just read a little bit out of it a little bit of it out it's really is interesting and um he put um my wife unfortunately being a suffragette put her pen through her name she's not away referring to her notion that she's going to try and evade she is here and she's attempted in his words this silly subterfuge to defeat the object of the census to which as head of household i object and so we see in this kind of snapshot of this 1911 census, we're recording this sort of woman, this Eleanor Mourns, but we're also getting a snapshot of her marriage, of the differences between herself and her husband. And I mean, you know, you try to put yourself in that situation where there's such a kind of, you know, argument between them over this census form. And you can kind of see that playing out on yeah, this absolutely. paper. And yeah. it's really fascinating. And when Vicky sent it to me, I was like, you know, this is just, this is like, this is brilliant. I love this. So we got our heads together and we did a little bit more research around it because I was just desperate to know, you know, who won this argument? You know, where did this end up? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we kind of discovered through a couple of newspaper records that we found that she was definitely her because <laughs> there's actually much, there's later on incidents where she was actually using their house to hold WSPU events. <laughs> So she was using it as like a bit of a venue for stuff. So clearly she got the upper hand. Um, and I just love little stories like that because it just gives you that snapshot into that moment in time in that household. It makes it so much more human, I think. Between, just, yeah, that dispute yeah. between husband and wife about what's going on. So I think in terms of kind of an amusing story that we were able to dig around a little on and find a bit more about. And of course, you know, she's not a famous campaigner. She's an ordinary woman. Um, and that's really what, you know, the ethos of mapping women's suffrage, while, of course, we'll be recording those ones that we all know about. It's the ones that we don't know about, you know, the ones that are hidden in grandma's attic still that, that people haven't come across that are buried in local archives, that kind of thing that we really want to get through on that map. Um, other, other than your ancestor potentially being um, absent on the 1911 census, is there is there anything else that might give you um you know I'm thinking of family historians here that might not know that they've got a suffragist or suffragette ancestor um whether there's any clues that they might discover that they should you know if they come across certain things that it should dig a little bit deeper and um, because it might be a clue that somebody's a suffragist um well, guessing newspaper searches and things like that but yeah, I mean, obviously, newspapers are brilliant, um, local newspapers and also suffrage newspapers. So you've got uh, newspapers like The Common Cause, which was kind of the, the 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 sort of mouthpiece, if you like, of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. You've got The Vote, which was the paper of the Women's Freedom League. Um, you've got uh, Votes for Women um, and The Suffragette, who were both associated at different times with the Women's Social and Political Union. And in those, you'll find a lot of names of people who have contributed, you know, a few shillings or, or a pound or whatever, depending on how wealthy they were. You've got names listed. You've got lots of addresses in there, too. Um, so, yeah, newspapers are always, you know, a great source um, and local newspapers as well. But coming back to the 1911 census, I mean, I think 
when we talk about that suffrage boycott or the, the suffragette boycott of the census, if you've got a relative that you know was kind of in or around a particular area or even lived in a specific address around that time in 1911, and then you get the 1911 census up and maybe the husband's there, but there's no wife. So, you know, basically someone's absent from the 1911 census record and there doesn't seem to be any explanation as to why they would be that could actually be a major clue that yeah. you might have an ancestor who was involved in the boycott and therefore in the women's suffrage campaign in some way um you know so that's it's funny isn't it because we always think of historical documents where we look at them to tell us things but in this case actually the absence of someone from that record could actually be the thing that gives us the heads up that gives us the clue to the fact that a female ancestor of ours may have been involved in the in the suffrage campaign so that's always quite an interesting flag to to look at and maybe try and pursue um i mean just from using um you know some of the uh, uh sort of ancestry type find my past type uh, sites which obviously are always really useful you know there's always those kind of wild card searches and i think it's always just worth you know just putting you know, random words in that you might relate to the suffrage campaign. Um, so things like vote, suffragette, you know, those kind of key words. And it's amazing how many, you know, kind of things that pop up. Um, because obviously, normally you wouldn't expect if you're doing a 1911 search, you wouldn't expect something to come up like that um, in an, on a normal census form. Mm. So it's always interesting to have a play around with some of those kind of key words um, to see what comes up. Um, I mean, obviously, in terms of digital resources as well, there's some great digital records online now. Um, and I'd point you towards the um, London School of Economics digital uh, women's rights collection, because there's lots of annual reports in there as well um, from the different suffrage societies. And often, obviously, they'll have membership records and names and things like that. So there's quite a lot of resources out there. Um, presumably, but, you know, presumably. Pardon? I was going to say, presumably those sorts of records as well, even if you don't find your own ancestor, you can you can read the books and, and read the sort of things that they were talking about and kind of get that that kind of context, even if you don't find your own ancestor's name, you, you know, which I always think is really helpful. Um, I just Yeah, I, I mean, in, in terms of in terms of reads, I mean, I know this is going to be backwards, but so this is a brilliant book um, by um Jill Liddington and it's also got a gazetteer in the back um, of kind of a lot of the census findings um, on the suffrage campaign which was also compiled with um, the fabulous Elizabeth Crawford who's you know just you know just knows everything there is to know about the women's suffrage movement so that's a really good book and and another one to start with in terms of regional local stuff is again Elizabeth Crawford's book which rightly or wrongly I call my suffrage bible which is the women's suffrage movement, a reference guide. And it's brilliant because it gives you the names of lots of suffrage campaigners and their addresses, but it also talks a lot about sources. So about newspapers, about shops, about local offices. So, um, you know, suffrage uh, organisations had local shops and offices in different towns and villages and cities. So, you know, it gives you a, a sense of, well, actually, was there something going on in my town? Um, you know, if the if there was, you'd find it in here or in her follow up book, which is um, a regional survey of Britain and Ireland. Um, so, again, you know, 
this is kind of really local based. I mean, it's based on geography and kind of moves around the country, looking at different organisations and who was involved. And there's little bits of snippets of names in there as well that are just begging for local historians or researchers to kind of follow through. So, okay. yeah, I mean, there's some really good sort of basic kind of reference guide reads out there as well um, that are just brilliant for kind of understanding that context. Uh, one of the one of the people watching commented that they particularly like uh, the Cat and Mouse by Tim Vickery, which they said it looks at um, Ireland. Oh, sorry, an interesting book that combines the suffrage movement with the crisis in Ireland. So that's um, oh, right. okay. Well, that's a, that's a whole other dimension yeah. to, the, to the suffrage campaign and talking about home rule and things like that. So yeah, I mean, I think that's the, that's the really fascinating thing, isn't it, about the women's suffrage campaign. It, it's 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 fascinating in its own right as a political movement but it impinges on so many other things and I think it's important to remember that whilst women were campaigning for the vote and obviously that was the drive of the campaign they were they didn't just they weren't just involved in that there were so many other reform issues that were important to these women and they saw the vote often as a means to be able to change other aspects of women's lives um so, so they didn't know it's not it's not like it wasn't always like just the vote for the vote's sake although quite frankly that's really important because it's about equity and it's about justice and it's about fairness but beyond that it's also about being able to change things um and to have women's political voice represented uh in the way that it should be so yeah i mean it's it, it's i think whatever aspect of Victorian or Edwardian uh, England and Britain and its empire that you're interested in, then the suffrage campaign is part of it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it impinges on so many fascinating things. I agree. Um, one of our viewers, Jane, has asked, um, are there petitions with names and, and have they survived? Can they be accessed? Um, the 1866 petitions are really interesting one unfortunately the document itself doesn't survive but there is um, a sort of printed transcripts of it um, and uh, there's a number of sources um, that you can look at for that obviously um, parliament the parliamentary archives have got the 1866 list of petition names but there's a really interesting project as well. Um, I don't know if your uh, sort of listeners have heard of this historical association. It's like a huge charity that works particularly to forward education um, um, in, in, in you know, all aspects of history. But I was involved in, in compiling a database for them back in 2018. Um, and they have, um, you know, that sort of list of of of, of women um, from the 1866 petition, and it's a fascinating document in itself because some of them we recognise and some of them we know and we're able to find things about. But there's still women in certain parts of the country that perhaps they never participated in any kind of women's suffrage campaign petition or anything ever again. We don't know, but literally all we've got is a name and a town, not even an address. So there's a constant kind of quest really to try and find out more about these women and that is ongoing there are historians that are trying to work on that at the moment and discover more about who these women were that that were pioneers really in signing this sort of very first formal nationally organized petition and getting it handed out into parliament so yeah i mean you know you can view that and there were lots of other petitions actually um that women did in different guises in that intervening almost 50 years by the time we get to 1911 as i'm sure you can imagine um but yeah, so so yeah, there's, there's there's lots of kind of avenues to explore there. 
And as you as you build up the um, as you build up the mapping project, are you seeing any? I know we we mentioned we had a brief discussion uh, when we had like our pre-interview chat, and I, I noted it down to ask you again: Is did you have you noticed any differences between uh, kind of urban campaigns and rural campaigns, or or the types of women that got involved? in differences between urban and rural areas? Well, it's a little bit too early really to say at the moment. And what I mean by that is obviously the aim of the project is to build up the map as absolutely fully as possible by 2028. And that sounds like it's a long way away, but we're talking about thousands and thousands of women here. Um, And I think when the map is more fully populated, then we're going to get a really good picture, an unprecedented picture actually of what's going on in different areas. there's always been an assumption, I guess, um, and understandably so, that, you know, there would be more campaigners participating in cities, for example, because you've got a denser population, you've got a bigger population. Um, but I think, you know, it's interesting, you know, when when you start to look at rural areas, uh, they may have campaigned in, in different ways, but they are actually a lot more active than you might think. So, for example, some of the research that's uh, uh, sort of come to light so far in Warwickshire, Um, has uncovered that a lot of them actually belong to a law-abiding society called the Conservative and Union Women's Franchise Association, which is a (laughs) bit of a mouthful. It's catchy. (laughs) I managed to get it out uh, tonight, despite the hour. Um, I'm usually getting ready for bed by now. But um, but yeah, uh, so, um, and that's really interesting because um, that was a law-abiding society. So it's a lot of those things we talked about. So it's like coffee mornings, it's tea get-togethers, it's local meetings, it's fates, it's garden parties. It's all of those kind of things. But, you know, politically they're important. I mean, I think if we think about politics today, you know, and we think about women's involvement, grassroots politics, as we might call it, community-level politics is so important. I mean, the chances of you becoming involved in something are going to be so much greater if you're part of a community where you can go to someone's house and have tea who you know is also interested in the same things and has the same political beliefs. It's, it's and, interesting. And, and sometimes rural communities have that closeness. Mm, yeah. So it's, it's, a diff, it's a difficult one to say yet. Yeah, I hope that in the fullness of time, as the map develops, we'll really get some interesting patterns because effectively it's going to be like a huge heat map, isn't it? You know, yeah. you're going to have different colours everywhere. I mean, if you've looked at the map, you'll kind of know what I mean. So each campaign on the map is represented by a different colour depending on what suffrage society they belong to so as you plot that map you've got all these different colours popping up in all these different areas and it's going to be so fascinating to see if there's is there a north south thing going on here is there going to be more kind of militant uh, suffrage campaigners belonging to more militant societies in the north and the south is it going to be equal is it going to be mixed between towns and cities or rural areas is there going to be any difference? There may not be. I mean, this is part of why the map is is going to be so, you know, so brilliant if we can get as many people on board to help to populate it, because it's going to hopefully, you know, give some fresh perspective um, on the campaign, which would be really fabulous. Absolutely. Um, no, I was just thinking about my own experiences, having lived in both urban areas and rural areas. So I think when you yeah. live in urban areas, you you know, you might walk into town and see more politics in action, as in see people campaigning or um, see posters and all that kind of thing. But having now moved to a rural community, certainly local politics, um, the old uh, Facebook, village Facebook group going nuts every five minutes, you know, talking about recycling bins and dog poo um 
always seem petty, but actually there is quite a stronger sense of community and those kind of um, more local issues certainly get a lot more airtime than than they did, you know, th than I noticed living in a city. So I think that would be really interesting to see how that played yeah, out. Yeah, and, and that, that's kind ago. of the point, isn't it? I think, you know, sometimes, you know, you can feel almost more sort of separated in, in a larger urban environment. Um, but also it depends on the type of people that live there as well. Mm. And, you know, inevitably, for example, with working class women, it was far more difficult for them to get involved for what might seem like really obvious reasons. But, you know, often, and it's again, we come back to political campaigning today, for women to be involved in politics is not an easy thing. Um, and it, it's still not now, and it certainly wasn't then, um, especially if you have limited financial means, um, especially if you have, um, you know, you're working full time, you've got children, you know, all of these things impact our ability to be able to take sort of direct action and things like that. So um, working class women, of course, did participate in the campaign. Um, and um, uh, I mean, one one that springs to mind for me, particularly if I've got time to say is in Halifax in the north of England, um, um, there's a, a lady called uh, Dina Connolly um, and she's a really interesting example for me because she's um, you know sort of a, a, a working class woman kind of weaver husband's a stonemason they've got um, um, two uh, three sons I think one was aged in 1911 one was aged nine one was aged two and the other one was 11 months so you can imagine the kind of situation that's going on there you know crammed into like a really small terraced house and that type of thing and yet she still found time to join the WSPU uh, and, in fact, travelled all the way down to London to take part in one of their events there. Unfortunately, ended up getting arrested and was put in prison for 14 days. So you can imagine that scenario. You've got an 11 month old at home. You've got a two month old. You've got a nine year old son uh, and you're kind of down in London. You get arrested. You get put in prison for 14 days. Um, you know, you're a long way from home. Mm. Um you know, and to think that she she kind of went to those lengths to be involved in this campaign to me is quite remarkable. And then what's really interesting is on the 1911 census record, um, she she complies. The husband, every, you know, everything's filled in. They comply, but fascinatingly, under occupation, she puts slave. And I think that's a really interesting reflection. Mm, that's really of how poignant. She must have felt. I mean, you can imagine, you know, that kind of lifestyle that that you know. The, the everyday struggle that she would have been living. Um, and I think that's a really fascinating, you know, sort of, again, you know, we talk about historical documents, kind of things leaping out from the archive. Um, so, you know, working class women, you know, that were involved in the campaign, were involved in lots of different ways, but she just stands out to me as a really kind of interesting example. No, yeah, definitely. I think that's a really, it actually gave me goosebumps when you said that, because mm. I just thought it was uh, really, really poignant. Um, you know, potentially somebody campaigning for change, knowing that it might not necessarily benefit them in their lifetime as well. That You know, that change takes such a long time to happen, that even if you get the vote tomorrow, you've still got a long way to go to make other changes. Um, well, that, that's, the, that's the interesting thing as well. I mean, obviously, you know, I talked about popular perceptions of the women's suffrage campaign, you know, still tend to focus very much on kind of London and suffragette activities. And obviously around the 2018 centenary um, of, of that sort of women getting the vote in 1918, um, you know, there was a lot of local history and, and great project pushback against that kind of narrative of, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff happened in London and, and you know, and, and it was fabulous to see all those wonderful projects locally kind of pushing back against that narrative of, of where and who took part in the women's suffrage campaign. 
Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I think it's really important to remember that while some women got the vote in 1918, it was women over 30. And that meant that a lot of the single, unmarried young women that gave their all to get votes for women actually didn't get the vote in 1918 um, and had to wait another decade uh, you know, you know what I mean. It's it's that kind of, you know. Sometimes we, you know, people lose sight of that in the celebration of of of, of some night and eighteen, which of course was a massive moment, and there's no getting away from that. Of course, it was. Um, but you know, I think it, it's sobering to think that it was another decade before women got the vote on the same terms as men. So late as well. It's so recent. It's yeah. It's almost touchable, isn't it? It's uh, yeah unbelievable really um I'm really conscious of the time because I know I've kept you past your bedtime but uh, (laughs) before we we finish off could you um could you anyone watching who wants to get involved how can they how can they get involved in the project how can they help with the uh, the mapping oh please do like I said this is a labor of love for me at the moment um I mean we're so fortunate that we've got a formal partnership with uh, Warwick University and what they're doing is making sure that all the technical aspects of the map and the database that kind of sits behind it is all recorded and kind of kept in perpetuity so it will be free to access all of that information once it's gathered for, for kind of you say in perpetuity so and it's never going to be chargeable so that's going to be there for everybody to use and to get the most out of forever um so that's brilliant um and with the national archives as well we've got that support But most of all, we need the support of local history groups, local archivists, family researchers, anybody who's just got an interest that wants to do a bit of digging. You know, it would be fantastic if you could contact the project and you can do that just by emailing um, the uh, contact form on the project website. It's coming through to me. Um, So, you know, that would be fantastic. I mean, like I said, local researchers and, and, and local history groups can make such a massive difference to this map. And if you do get a chance to have a look, you'll see what I mean when you look at, for example, Sussex. You know, Frances Stenlake has just sent us so many fabulous campaigners um, and she's made such a huge difference there. Um, there's information on the website about how you can contribute. So there's actually a, a get involved section on the website and there's a, a pre kind of uh, a setup form where you can kind of submit a campaigner and the details that you've got. There's also like a little form there that that kind of gives you a bit of a guide as well about how to help you. Like I said, you can just email the project and ask me any questions that you want to ask me, which you can do through the website. That's no problem. But yeah, I mean, we, we're getting local history groups on board. Um, so yeah, it's it's just really exciting. And if there's anyone out there that has a suffrage campaigner in their family, please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear about it. Bear in mind that, like I said, this is a labour of love for me, so it might take me a little bit of time to get back to you, but all contributions are absolutely valued. And, I mean, we also do, obviously, blogs as well, and we've got some academics on there on our blog page. We've got archivists. We've also got some videos on YouTube. I mean, one um, family historian and local historian called Margaret Scott did a fabulous job um, of finding out stuff about Emily Wilding Davison, who was from her hometown up in Northumberland. But then she also did some of her own family research and she was one of those lucky people who found a suffrage campaigner in her family and actually a really important one um, that was based down south. Um, I think her name was Elizabeth Close Shipman. Um, and she discovered this ancestor, which was amazing for her, as you can imagine. Um, 
and so she's contributed her to the map as well um, and there's an actual video on our YouTube site where Margaret talks about her research journey, um, uh, you know, researching her family history and, and kind of coming across this this suffrage connection. Um, so that's really worth a watch because it's quite inspiring, I think, um, this journey that she took and where she's got to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're also open to people sending in blogs, their stories, their family research stories. If they've come across a suffragette, how did you get there? What did you do? What were your thoughts and feelings? Um, so, yeah, just do contact me and um, I'd be uh, you know, really happy to hear from anybody that's got an interest in getting involved. Um, yeah. And I'd be happy to sort of talk you through anything or answer any questions that you might want um to ask. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I will make sure that um, links are added to the um, YouTube version of this broadcast, but also uh, this video will go into a accompanying blog post where it will be available to either watch or to listen to on audio uh, as a podcast. So, you know, however you're catching up on it, if you're only catching the tail end of this, depending on your time zone. Um, there's plenty of ways to catch up so yeah there'll be a, a, a accompanying blog post over at www.genealogystories.co.uk and that will have a list of all the resources that we've mentioned and a link to the mapping project as well um, if you are quite keen to write about your ancestors um, perhaps in particular your female ancestors I'm also running a, a five-day writing challenge uh, for free called reclaim Jane hashtag reclaim Jane which you might uh, notice on Twitter you can find details of the challenge on my Facebook page um, or on my Twitter to feed um, but that's all about writing about uh, women who who went unheard within their lifetime so it just seems like an appropriate place to mention it really but um, thank you so much Tara for coming along and speaking to me I really really enjoyed it. Um, thank, well, I was going to say thank lovely. you for having me and I, I do apologise to like your listeners if I've kind of talked at 100 miles an hour and kind of gone around a little bit like I said I can only say late in the day and too many coffees but I hope somewhere in the nub of that you've got an impression of the project and please do go and look at the map and you'll see also that what we're trying to do is centralise lots of material as well so you don't have to go to loads of different digital repositories and loads of different archives all over the place we're trying to centre everything about one woman in their home on the map um, from different resources and stuff as well. So yeah, please do check us out. And um, thank you for, for taking the time out to listen. Oh, thank you. I'm going to hit the end broadcast button now, which uh, always does this weird thing where it like hangs and it's really embarrassing. I'll just sit there waving awkwardly. But yeah, thank you so <laughs> I'll much. I'll drink my tea. <laughs>